Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breathes all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundary of the places where they would live, so that they would search for, for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of, of mortals. While God has overlooked the time of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. May God bless the reading of God's holy scripture. Amen. It was important for me to have this conversation with you because I, and, and reading the scripture that way, because I want you to understand that I, I'm almost 100% positive that when Paul addressed the church or the group of people in Athens, the Epicureans and the Stoics that he was standing in front of, he would have done it in such a manner that he did it that way. You see, as you would walk into town, as you came to the Areopagus, this high place outside the Parthenon, you would have been walk you would have been walking next to this gigantic entryway in the street into Athens that some would say are forty feet tall, some would say sixty feet tall, but on each side there would be columns, and inside those columns would be places where there would be of the Greek and Roman gods that certain families would pay for and have their name inscribed with a plaque to show how much money they had and to outdo one another. It was to show all of the different idols of the Greeks and the Romans. Because we tend to forget that even though it's in Athens that this particular store is taking place in, the Romans are in charge. It's so much so that the Romans decide to change their gods. They just use the Greeks and change the names. Zeus becomes Jupiter. 
You see how this goes? Hades becomes Ares, or vice versa, depending on who you talk to. They can't necessarily agree on who's in charge of war, but there's bad things. Hades becomes a place. No, he's a person. He engages, however, the non-Christian culture of his day, the non-religious culture of his day. Now, this would have included devout Jewish seekers as well as Epicureans and Stoics. And he would have done it in a formal way, just like I did. He would have done it in such a manner that you would have seen this because as he was walking into town, he would have seen this on both sides. I, I don't know about you, but that's, that's pretty intimidating. Walking into a town that is surrounded by these idols shadowing, literally shadowing you as you walk into this place, into the Parthenon, the places of worship for all of Athens. How would we shape the gospel message if we were invited to give a presentation of the gospel in this place? Now, I, I need you to understand the Epicureans and the Stoics. There's a term that we use at my house uh, very lovingly that it's, it's, uh, it's something to be proud of. It's the term nerds. We tend to uh, fashion ourselves to be nerds. Um, my daughter is a nerd when it comes to pop culture. My son is just a nerd in general. I'm, of course, a nerd on, well, you all know, and, and I, I don't need to go into that. But see, the Epicureans and the Stoics, well, they're the nerds upon nerds upon nerds. They're the ones that wrote the books on how to become nerds. They are so smart that they don't even have to write the book. They just ooze intelligence all and everywhere that they go. And so as Paul is having this conversation with them, He's hoping that they have some sort of dialogue with them. It would be like us being invited to speak to the National Kantian Philosophic Society. And you're all going, well, who's, who's Kant? Well, Immanuel Kant is, a, is a, an ancient philosopher that gave us and, and inspired people, small people like uh, Martin Luther and other uh, Protestant Reformation movement people. You know, the ones that give us the reason to be here on Sunday mornings. Philosophy is extremely, well, Luther inspires Kant. It's a, I got it out of order. The point is, philosophy and theology today are things that we talk about and discuss in open dialogue because we recognize that in the world that we live in, one cannot think and not one cannot feel alone. One has to do both at the same time. Paul is talking to this, and he reminds us that the church must engage the culture with an intelligent presentation of the gospel so that non-Christian listeners can understand what's so good about the good news of Jesus Christ. It can't be just one or the other. It has to be both and. 
Now Luke gives us sample sermons of Paul's to suggest how the gospel was shaped for pagan audiences. Now I want you to really pay attention to this that I just got done reading. This is different than any other sermon that Paul has given in the book of Acts. You're like, well, aren't all sermons the same? Yeah, I, we start off about God and we end about God. But in this case, this particular passage of Scripture is unique. Now, y'all ready? You are all going to leave today being able to say that you're Greek scholars. I, I want you all to say this. I get to be a Greek scholar. That's all right. You can say it out loud. Fantastic. You get to be a Greek scholar because Paul doesn't quote from the Hebrew Bible here. He doesn't quote from the Gospels here. What? He says, and and I'm using his quotes, like the poets that you know, the first one, Epimenides, I got it that time, I said in the first service, just call him EpiPen. The first poet that Paul quotes, Epimenides, EpiPen, the poem that he writes is called, this is what it sounds like. Well, this is the poem in, from Greek into English. They fashioned a tomb for you, O high and holy one, the Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, and idle bellies, but you are not dead. You live and abide forever, for in you we live and move and have our being. Paul uses one of their own from Athens. He uses their poem to talk about the tomb of the unknown God. You are all Greek scholars. The next poem that he quotes from is, uh, is from, uh, 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 oh my goodness, Eratus or Eratus. His name is easier, but for some reason I had a, my brain stopped working. Never, O oh men, let us leave him unmentioned. Always are full of Zeus and all meeting places of men. We all have to do with Zeus, for we are of his offspring. So he uses their culture to talk about their God as if it's the same God. And then says, but we are all of his offspring. Because even the Greeks, the Athenians, would have agreed with that. You remember the nerds upon the nerds upon the nerds? They didn't see the delineated lines between faith traditions. They didn't see the delineated lines. They just knew, here's the Greek gods, and you're all welcome to have yours. But as for us, these are the ones that we shall worship. So Paul doesn't use in this sermon the Hebrew Bible to prove Jesus' messiahship. 
Paul doesn't use the New Testament. Well, Paul wouldn't have, but Paul doesn't use the Gospels to prove his Messiahship. He doesn't even try to create a new dialogue. He says, well, even within your own people, you know this story. You've been talking about it for centuries. What are some of the symbols or icons or activities in our own culture that reflect our quest for ultimate reality? <laughs> One of those is, I would say, I have a friend of mine that he calls himself the, uh, the TikTok preacher. Um, he, he comes up with these really cool TikTok 40-second, you know, inspirational messages that have drawn a following. I, I have people that have created podcasts. I'm, I have created a podcast. It was really for my doctorate, and it was during the pandemic so that I had some way to connect to us, but it has created a following. How good are we at both talking about ways of connecting to today's culture as well as our own? That's, that's the question for us today. That yearning for the ultimate reality of what does Jesus mean to us? How do we connect and critique contemporary culture? According to George Hunter, who wrote, uh, who wrote the book um, Churching for the Unchurched, he says there's two cultural challenges today, secularism and modernity. He says the vast majority of churches have not within memory reached and discipled any real secular person. I want you to hear that. Many churches would be astonished if it ever happened because many churches do not even intend to reach lost people outside their church's present circle of influence. Their main business is caring for their members. He says, in considering all of this, he said, I've become obsessed with two questions. What kind of church can reach and disciple the growing number of secular people across our land? And his second question is, is what can churches do to produce a witnessing and inviting people? It's true. Churches struggle with that, even just the terminology. We have churchy language that people need a translator for. We have the processes and our traditions and the way that we worship that people don't understand. And when we talk about it, we just assume that they should pick it up. But what if just for once we found ways of connecting to the people outside our doors rather than just ministering to the ones inside the building. In this meeting between Jerusalem and Athens, note how Paul engages the culture. He recognizes worthwhile qualities. He names a felt need, appeals to the created order. He recognizes the human experience and the search for a loving, all-encompassing God. I think we're in denial as church, big C by the way, 
when we think we've got it all figured out. The average truth of the congregations amongst the country are that churches are in decline. No, it's not because for lack of trying. It's, it's because we need to reevaluate ourselves. We have to look at our understandings of what God is speaking to us through Scripture. In your own congregation, we have been doing that with our discipleship committee, with our deacons and elders, as we look at the definitions of what we do and then make that a practice and a procedure. Not a procedure, but a way of life. To be a deacon is much more than just serving communion on Sunday morning. It's a huge part of it. But biblically, it has deeper, deeper meanings. To be an elder, biblically, has more than just saying a prayer on Sunday morning. It is much more, and it's deeper and deeper. The church, in general, in the 21st century, is very comfortable with being lukewarm. We want the ultimate reality, but we really... Want it if it'll fit within our schedule for the 20 minutes that I have available. And, yeah, you ask people to work in a culture that says, I just really am overwhelmed. I just can't do anymore. Of course you're going to see the church in decline. Who's the one doing all the work? You don't see other people hanging out at the food pantry. You see people from churches. So yeah, we need to do some more discipleship. What we have to do is to be, to be moving forward and effective is engaging our non-church culture. Now here's the most important part, church. We have to leave the results up to God. There's no stats to prove what we are doing when we plant seeds. Some are going to welcome it, the non-church and those that aren't participate. And even some will reject our Christian perspective of loving all of God's creation. It's in that place that we still have to leave the results up to God. Now you're probably asking yourselves, as Josh has ranted on for uh, probably 17 minutes at this point, Josh, how does this have to deal with Mother's Day? It doesn't. <laughs> and then it has everything to do with it. When we have people that have found love and compassion whether they're our, our mothers, our fathers, there needs to be an understanding that we have a church family. And in that we raise each other up. We love each other unconditionally. I just happen to have been blessed with uh, two grandmothers that were able to serve congregations before it was ever deemed popular or let alone available. I love being able to tell the story about my, my grandmother's blazed trails of loving God, loving people before it was cool. 
I love being able to talk about the fact that both of, well, my grandfather on my mom's side and my dad have all served congregations, but I love the fact, the nurture that my mom gave to me, helping me see that ultimate reality and putting the words in my mouth. Josh, if you're not a part of the solution, you're a part of the problem. (laughs) And then my mom, who still says it, Josh, if you're going to work with with work with people, the ultimate reality is, is you either have to put up or shut up. We do all of these things asking God to help us connect to human beings in any way known to man. Humanity is in desperate need of God's love, God's compassion, God's peace, and you are those vessels. In the name of the Creator, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.